This call is being recorded. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the LitSot podcast. This is a very first episode. Um, so uh, to explain the name a little bit, it's an acronym, L-I-T-S-O-T, and it stands for this quote by uh, Edwin Percy Whipple. When uh, he wrote something to the effect, and I don't have the exact quote right in front of me, but um, he said that uh, books are like lighthouses in the great sea of time. And so I found that inspiring, and to kind of tell you what we'll be doing in this podcast, we'll be reading some really great books and discussing them amongst ourselves. So, uh, my name is Gabe Meyer. Um, I'm a homeschooler. I am uh, 17 years old, almost 18. And uh, this is the f- my first time reading uh, the Theban Trilogy, which we're going to be discussing today. With me on the podcast, I have my friends Isabel and Aiden. And uh, Isabel's going to introduce herself first. Hello, my name is Isabel. I am calling in from the Czech Republic, where I live with my family. I'm also homeschooled. Um, also, I'm, I'm 17 years old. All right, and Aiden. Um, hello, I'm Aiden. I was homeschooled. I am 18, um, and this is my second time reading the Thebian Trilogy. Nice. Nice. All right, cool. So let's let's kind of dive right in and talk a little bit about the Theban Trilogy. Like, what is it? Who wrote it? What's the historical context? What's 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 it all about here? So um, obviously, it's it's a Greek play, and it's uh, it's it's a tragedy. Bad bad stuff happens. <laughs> Definitely, you can say that again. Yes, yes. Uh, you the main character goes goes. Uh, pretty much downhill the the entire way and uh yeah so uh yeah so but what's weird about this is uh, you correct me if i'm wrong isabel but aren't greek tragedies like isn't the point of them supposed to like like edify people by like um by like presenting like a, a like a character that's flawed and like he falls because of his flaw isn't that generally the schema of Greek tragedies. Tell me tell me a little bit more about this form of play. Well, I am not exactly sure about the form of play as a genre, but I do think that there is an element of um, Oedipus calling causing his own fall here because he runs he, he runs from fate and in doing so he actually unwittingly fulfills this fate. Okay. All right. So, so maybe the moral is like, don't run from fate. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So, I think I feel like maybe we should we should sum up the um, what what happens in the play in, in case any of our uh, listeners haven't haven't already read it or it's it's been a while. Just kind of just kind of like sum it up here. So, um, just before we do that, um, an important thing to keep in mind is that the Phoebean trilogy is three plays all written by Sophocles, but they were written over like a very over his career. Antigone, the third play, was written near the beginning. Um Oedipus Rex, which is the one we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. um, is written more in the middle. And the final one of the the third one, which takes place chronologically in the middle, he wrote near the end of his career. That's um, weird. Yeah, well, it's because they weren't. It wasn't written as a set of three plays. These three plays are just some of the many plays Sophocles wrote over his career that all happen to focus around the city of Thebes and their royal family. Interesting. It's also important to keep in mind that Thebes is an enemy of the city of Athens, and so, well, the royal family being portrayed as well, a terrible family might partially be because the Athenians hated the city of Thebes. That makes sense. Was Sophocles Athenian? Yeah, Sophocles and was Athenian, and this was during the Peloponnesian War, so oh. they're fighting against, like, Sparta, and Thebes was an ally of Sparta. Gotcha, okay. So, what, um... Also, were any, did any other of his... Athens? 
Sorry. What? Say that again. Corinth, where which is where Oedipus grows up, mm-hmm. was also an ally of Sparta. So I mean, Oedipus is gotcha. kind of like completely an enemy of Athens. Okay, that makes a little more sense now. Um, <laughs> which is why Athens is uh, portrayed in such a, a very nice and friendly, welcoming uh, light in the second play. Interesting. Interesting. Were there any other plays that survived, like of, uh, like like of Thebes? Like, yeah. Oh, about Thebes? I'm not sure. Sophocles has other plays. There's one about, um, I forget what it's called. It's really good, and I don't understand how it's a tragedy. It, um, is about, um, Achilles' son getting the bow of. Hercules. Whoa. There were some other, and I believe there's some other plays by Sophocles. The Thebian trilogy is definitely one of his most famous sets. According to something that um, I read, he's written over 20 of them altogether, which we That's have amazing. present day. Oh, okay. Maybe it's 20 that we have in present day. But I mean, he wrote a lot more that we don't have. In, indeed, yeah. Cool. That's that's really neat. It it's it's funny how like in in a lot of these these Greek plays, like how how much they'll like connect all the different myths. Like like there will be so much meta, so much crossover. Like like what you were saying, like 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 Achilles' son getting the bow of Hercules. Like that's like, I, I feel like that's like. <laughs> it it indeed, reminds me of like yeah. Agents of Shield, right? It's like you got the Marvel movies, and then you have like the background stuff that happens, like you know, like. Well, you know, interestingly, um, speaking, uh, turning the conversation back to Oedipus Tyrannus, the first, the first play, um, mm-hmm. in this trilogy, it was not. This is this play is not the first version of this myth. This this um, myth, which we are about to summarize. Um, appeared in was written by different poets over the years and it even has kind of a little um reference in the odyssey which i was reading recently um yocasta or however you pronounce her name Mm -hmm. uh she appears when um when odysseus um summons the shades and he he talks with her actually so um it, this is um and this play has influenced um literature over the years um in such a way that when um when there's a a character who has a thing for his mother it's n- referred to as the Oedipus complex. Ooh, right, because Freud considered this a very important play in his ideas of how like society has dreams and stuff weirdly interesting that's that's very cool all right so so to so to quick uh, summarize it all basically um and so I'm, I'm just gonna run through this and you guys can correct me and fill in the gaps if if i if i get it wrong so um oedipus is king of the city uh the the way he got to be king of the city is is um that you kind of figure that out throughout the play but basically there's this sphinx that uh, had the city captive and uh, wanted people to answer this riddle, and Oedipus like answered the riddle, and then uh, he became king of the city and chased out the Sphinx. So, um, yeah, so so he's king of the city, and uh, everything's all hunky dory except for there's this plague happening. Like I, I think it had something to do with like reproduction, like like the the babies weren't getting born right or whatever, and then um, <laughs> so. So so Oedipus is there and then he's like, Well, we gotta figure this out. What's 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 going wrong? And then so uh like like any uh, smart Greek back then they consulted uh I, there there's this prophet guy that shows up and he's like, Oh well there's there's this um there's this guy, like it's it's his fault. Like we just we just chased this dude out of here and then he's um our plague will go away. So so say it the gods and and Oedipus is like, well, who is it? And he's like, you, because uh, you slept with your mom and killed your dad. And he's like, what? That's impossible. And um, 
Yeah, so so then he thinks that the this other guy, Creon, uh, is the one that set up this oracle to say that to him, and he's like, Oh no, I do not I d I didn't I didn't tell him to say that. He just said it. I mean what I'm your friend, man. And then um and so then they send uh, people out to another oracle to like to like you know kind of confirm the saying like see if the oracles like match up just like get get a better oracle get a second opinion you know and um, so the other oracle basically kind of says the same thing and Oedipus is like well shoot like like we gotta we gotta dig into this like I I kind of thought my parents were still in Corinth like I thought thought those were my parents and then then so he kind of gets into the backstory of his life and it turns out that he did accidentally end up killing his father. And, um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, there's this whole thing with a shepherd in there, too, is, like, this, this shepherd that, like, it, and, and, um, yeah, so, it, the, the gist of it is he, he figures this out, he's, he's really distraught, um, his wife and mother figures this out, too, and she kills herself, and then he finds her, and then, um, he, like, takes her jewelry and stabs his eyes out with them, and then, uh, that's the end of the play. So, did I miss anything? I think it's very important to understand the play. The fact that um, the old king, the king who was um, before Oedipus, mm-hmm. um, what's his name now? Lyaris, is it? or something? Yes. Know. And um, the oracle tells them that the murderer of this man needs to be found and purged out of the city, so basically banished. And Oedipus mm-hmm. calls down a curse from heaven against whoever is harboring, harboring this person, harboring oh. this criminal. And even if it should be his even if it should be someone from his own household. And um and that um Oedipus curses himself basically because he doesn't realize it, but he's the one who did it. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I never really thought of it that way. So, if we should start from the very, very beginning, as I see it, we would probably want to ask the question, what is this thing even about? I mean, beyond the basics of the storyline, what's it trying to tell us? Yeah. Um, I I think a lot of it is about, about fate. And... and uh, like like avoiding fate because like in in through the play you kind of like learn about all these um ways that because this was prophesied about that like this would happen to Oedipus like way way back when right so of course like they well, took it was precautions it was prophesied like multiple times which is what makes it so annoying because like it was prophesied to his parents they was mm-hmm. going to kill um, his dad, and then Sleepos' mom. Then it was prophesied to him, mm-hmm. and so, like, so they send him away when it's prophesied to his parents. Get it prophesied to them. They send him away. It gets prophesied to him, and he immediately goes and kills his dad accidentally, but right. in like response to the prophecy, he like fulfills it. Right. I mean, at some point, if you just got prophesied something like that, do you just never kill anyone ever or sleep with anyone ever again? No. <laughs> right. Well, I think that the prophecies are extremely important to this story, but somehow I don't think that the prophecies get to the very kernel of the heart of, of the matter. I mean, because, you know, in literature class, they always tell us that there are several kinds of stories. You know, there is man versus man, man versus fate, man versus himself. And I'm wondering if maybe we could see this as a quest. It's a quest to find out who the killer is. Who's the bad guy? But deeper than that, what is a quest at its most fundamental level? A quest is a search for self-knowledge. Yeah. Because the object of the quest is never important. Bilbo never takes home a 13th of the treasure, you know, that kind of of thing. The object of the quest is not the point. The object is what happens to the chief character. So what happens to this guy? He starts out as this highly arrogant, 
very explosive, very powerful person. But what does he find out during this? And it, the tension of the play starts out so early. It starts out almost in the, the very opening um, opening scene um, when there are there starts to come clues that there, there starts to be talk of this prophecy talk of of Oedipus's mysterious past um, that he's not where he thinks he is he doesn't know himself perfectly he's blind in a way to himself huh. <laughs> and what happens what happens to him in the in the in the end? He discovers that he's not a perfect person. Something right. very very obvious about his life is completely wrong. Right. <laughs> that's wow. Good, good, good summary. That's that's impressive. Yeah, the quest. Wow. Yeah. So it's like a. Wow. So as, as soon as as soon as he can see, he can't see. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and, and look, listen to this this part of the play. Um, it's very significant, I think, that the the person who turns up. Um, well, the prophecy, the prophecy, um, the, the man comes and, and tells them that they have to purge the evil. And Oedipus takes the oath that he's going to find the killer and expose him. And then he he consults um, he consults this man who is blind named Tiresias, mm-hmm. um, and he turns up and says that um, he, he, uh, Oedipus basically in a in a um, temper tantrum forces him to say that the murderer is you. You are blind. You can't even see this, and. Um, where is it now? I'm I'm looking for the line. You poor fool! The same abuse you hurl at uh, Oedipus says in, um, you have no power. Your ears and your mind are as blind as your eyes. And then Tiresias replies to him, "You poor fool! The same abuse you hurl at me, they'll soon enough be hurling at you." And there's just this whole play on words of light versus darkness. And of course, I think the most striking and powerful imagery in this whole play is that from the very beginning the blind man sees and the seeing man is blind and at the very end of the play what does Oedipus do when he finds out the truth about himself he blinds himself because it's too terrible to see wow that is a very good point I mean although I think you're probably right I would also um, say that there you can read too much in to the prophet being blind because the blind prophet is like very standard. So, <laughs> like there's the always a blind being, prophet, right? Yeah, like prophets being blind. Mm-hmm. But I think he used a it. Standard motif. Well, it is a very standard motif, and I think. Um, it's standard for maybe a reason. Um, because, uh, well, in, in this context, I think, of, of the story, people use very obvious things, which in real life would be meaningless, in a literary sense, as a device to draw our attention to something. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I think that um, if, as I've been interpreting the play as um, a quest for self-knowledge, um, self-illumination, the I, I, I read it about three times through um, with this specifically in mind. And wow. there's so much imagery throughout the play and references to blindness and to, to sight... Okay. Do you have some of those? Uh, yes, I do. I'm looking for them. Well, there, here's one where Oedipus hurls insults at Tiresias and said, um, 
is everything you say shrouded in dark riddles. Mm. And in um in in when the choruses have their um their strophes, their str- how would you pronounce that word? Strophe. Strophes. Yes. I don't know. There yeah, okay, are. That, that's the other weird thing about Greek plays is they have like the chorus. That might be an interesting thing to touch on in a in a bit. Well, I mean, it's where Greek plays come from. Originally, you didn't even have actors. Originally, Greek plays were just a group of people singing, and then they were introduced, and the rule, actually, in Greek tragedies is that you can't have more than three speaking characters on stage at a time. Okay. So it sort of went from, like, a poem to a song to a group song to a play. Right. And so when you... So... That's Greek plays are a very early form of play where you never have more than three speaking characters on stage at a time, and they were very likely played by the same three people. So you would have somebody run off stage and come back on stage hmm. as a different character. Right. Plus, they used masks, so that was that was a little easier. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't just like, "Hey, I'm Oedipus. <laughs> hey." <laughs> All right, sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, blindness. Blindness. Um, well, I'm sorry. I don't have a list of all of oh, all, of, all of the references. However, I do think that with reference with, with this in mind, um, I I think it would be interesting to talk more about the prophecies because I think you know seeing is very integral and seeing and understanding are very integral to prophecies, of course, especially in, in the Greek sense. Because, right. I mean, the role of faith and prophecies was not at all like what we would consider like a modern religion where you just accept what's true. They were all, always deliberately confusing. And I think that huh. in the book, or in the play, excuse me, there are basically three prophecies. Um, the first one being made to Yocasta, Yo- mm-hmm. and the second one to Oedipus, and the third one, of course, that sets the whole plot in motion right. when, Apollo, um, when Apollo calls you know, for the expulsion of the murderer. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, Yocasta and Oedipus suffer from pretty much the same fate. In the very you know, pre-action... Yocasta, when she was still married to the previous king, um, Laius, Laius mm-hmm. um, it was prophesied to her that her son would kill his father. Right. And then later, it was prophesied to Oedipus that he would kill his father and marry his mother, except mm-hmm. he was living with a foster family. So what does Yocasta do? She, in order to evade this fate, has her baby thrown out to die of exposure. <laughs> and, um, right. which that was like that's like basically the equivalent of abortion, but it was like a common practice in the time, right? Right, I mean, right. you like you think about this being like a terrible act, but it was a relatively common practice of the time, kind of like abortion is in modern day. Which, of course, I do think of abortion as a terrible thing, but... Well, I think... Not everybody does. Right. Well, people also thought of violence differently at the time. As we will see, if you you think about what Oedipus himself did, how did he kill his father exactly? He was on the road and um, picked a fight, basically, with... um, with this stranger who was riding in, in his in his carriage, I believe it was. Correct right. me if I'm wrong. With several other guys. And um, interestingly, he kills them all. He slaughters them, basically. What was that called for? Uh, certainly not. And um, well, it might think... not have been called for, but they like, threatened his like honor to some extent. I mean, they said, get off the road. I mean, when Robin Hood and Lil John meet on the bridge, and they both tell each other what me pass first. I mean, they get in a fight. Of course, they don't actually kill each other. But if only it would have turned out so good as that did. <laughs> right. Well, 
Right, right, right. Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting, though, to me. I think the point of interest is that they both reacted with violence, disproportionate, you know, that they, they reacted with violence and in doing so, fulfilled their own prophecies. Incurred violence upon themselves. Incurred, Interesting. incurred violence. So, and, but what was a proper response to a prophecy like that? What Theoretically, what's, what's a way that they could have... Is there a way they could have avoided this? Well, that's a very... I honestly don't think there was. Interesting. Can you elaborate? I, I feel as if the, at least, like, if you, like, buy into, like, the Greek idea of stuff, that once the prophecy is laid down, you're kind of stuck. You can't <laughs> avoid it. And that's, like, the point, is there's nothing you can do to avoid it. And, like, huh. trying to avoid it is going to cause it to happen all the more. Interesting. And if you accept the prophecy, and then, like, say, whatever, well, I mean it will still happen because now you're accepting it. That would have certainly made things weird at home for Oedipus. <laughs> right, but I mean, if you think about it, if he had went home and killed the king of Corinth and married the queen, he would have still fulfilled the prophecy. And nobody would have said, oh, your real parents are over in Thebes, so it doesn't work. I mean, it would have <laughs> still right. Well, well, clearly fulfilling the prophecy. Well, clearly nobody would go out to fulfill a prophecy like that. There are certain contexts in which a prophecy maybe you could fulfill, but these these prophecies are definitely not prophecies that you can deliberately fulfill. I think it's it's interesting that there's this tension between what's being foretold and how their actions affected it. You know, it, it's like there's this dualism of of your 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 actions you know versus fate right right so so if if the prophecy wasn't resisted if he just kind of stayed home and they just kind of didn't tell him about the prophecy and just kind of i don't know like what how how would that have turned out i don't know would it have been better or worse well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the prophecy never having happened, he may have still accidentally done it. Right. I mean, everything that happens, happens accidentally. Like, everything he does is, like, accidental. I mean, yeah, he's running away, but at the same time, if he happens to decide to go to Thebes, just for the sake of going to Thebes, and then liberates the city and so on, I mean he could have still ended up accomplishing everything. Right. So, I mean, I, I, suppose, mean, I suppose it was unavoidable, but like, like Isabel was saying, too, it's, like, it's not like he necessarily dealt with things in the best way, either. <laughs> that is true. Well, and I guess that for the purposes of the play, the distinction is somewhat irrelevant, because I think that the whole emotional power of the drama comes from how Oedipus is realized that he's chained to him, himself and, and what he's become unwittingly, and um, how it, it was kind of a comedy of circumstances in a way. Yeah. And yet, you know, he did do this. Unwittingly or not, you know, on right. purpose or not, he did do these terrible things. Hmm. Right. And I mean, I don't, I don't think I mean, that the, the I feel, I feel like it. Yeah, I feel like it sometimes. Like, like, uh, like I know I've felt that way too before. Like you know when you like, you like kind of come to your senses and it's like three in the morning and there's like an empty bucket of ice cream next to you and your computer's out of battery. Like. <laughs> Well, I like, mean, man, it's, I mean, it's fate is unavoidable. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting too because the entire we can see what's happening to Oedipus pretty much right. almost from the start. 
Right. We can see that he's cursing himself and that, you know, we can see, we know who he is, but he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And it's being hinted at the whole time. Um, and he, we know something he doesn't know, which is right. a really, that device shows up a lot in literature. So we can feel, you know, like we're, our teeth are on edge. Right. The impending doom. The, the impending doom. And um, therefore, the, the words that he speaks, the, the, the curses on the, the stranger, and when he, is, um, when he is cursing the seer and Creon, mm-hmm. um, when he's cursing them for accusing him, we can, we can, just, we can just see that, oh, man, that, that, that's terrible irony there. There's so much irony in this play. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I totally agree. There's tons of there's tons a lot of irony. of irony. It's and I mean yeah. you have to keep in you have to keep in mind the intended audience of this was the people were like Greek people who knew this story because it was a common story for them. This exact telling wasn't common. But, like, the story of Oedipus would have been known by everyone watching. Indeed, and I think that's why... anyone who didn't know the ending when the play started. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why the play is so much more dramatic if you read it more than one time. Because after you know what the ending is, and then you go back and scour the, the play and read it very carefully... There's all these references all the time, you know, all of these kind of Easter eggs that (laughs) that you can pick up on. Yeah, (laughs) foreshadowing. All this foreshadowing that you won't notice if you don't know where it's going, but, I mean, because you know where it's going. Right. Especially, like, when he's cursing it. At the beginning, when he's like making those curses on the person who killed the previous king, and you're like, you're laying this on really thick for it to be yourself. <laughs> right, reminds me of uh, the biblical story of of King David when uh, when he when he sleeps with uh, uh, Bathsheba, and then Nathan the prophet comes and tells him tells him this allegorical story, and David's like, oh well, that man should that man should die. You are the man. Yes, you are the man. <laughs> Well, yeah. now that we're on the subject of, of parallels to Bible stories, mm-hmm. what do you think about Oedipus versus Job? Job, ooh. ooh yeah. That's a good one. That's a very good one. I just read Job. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. I've been reading it a lot lately and, and studying it carefully. But So, first of all, before we get on to the differences, what do you think the similarities are? Um, I mean, well, they, they both start out as, like, uh, wealthy people, they they're they're sitting pretty good, and then and then something something happens to them that appears to have been kind of out of their control, and they kind of go spiraling down. <laughs> right, well, and then true, they have this, but... they have this period of intense suffering caused by the gods, or at least in right. in Job's case, allowed by God. Right. Right, but I mean, there are some strong differences. I mean, Very true. for one, I mean, Oedipus definitely causes his own problems. <laughs> like, whether or not he's responsible, we could debate that, and actually I think that would be an interesting thing mm-hmm. to discuss, um, the responsibility he has for his actions. But, I mean, he's definitely... He's the one who did it. Right. Unlike Job, where it's just kind of like a whole bunch of things happening to him. I mean, the house collapsed on his kids. I mean, that's not really his fault in any way that his kids die in a house collapsing. Right. It hurts him, but it's not like he could take responsibility for that. Where Oedipus finding out that his dad was killed not by some random person, but by him. Well, right. He has to take responsibility for it. Right. To some extent. Yep. 
Job. Um, Although the endings are different too. So Job Job has a Job is a comedy, whereas Oedipus is a tragedy. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't go so far as to call Job a comedy. It has a happy <laughs> ending. It does indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Isn't that what you're, a comedy you're is? You're using you're using the more strict definition of the word right. comedy. Sorry, not not that versus... it's a funny story, right? Right. But yeah, so what? why does Job have a happy ending, whereas Oedipus does not? Is it merely, is it merely just the character of the deities? <laughs> I think it probably plays a strong role on the characters of the deities. Definitely. I mean, the but, god of the Bible is a much more, is a kind of loving god. Right. Who, though he gets mad at Job for... At a certain point, Job finally says, God is unjust. And right. he's like, well, who are you to judge me? Right. He also then spins around and says, but all you other people, you were way more wrong than Job. And Job is still righteous enough that he is the one who I want to bring your guys' offerings to me. Right. Yeah, definitely. Can Can you imagine... Can you imagine Apollo turning around and being like, all right, Jocasta, like, come on. <laughs> well, I think that what the most interesting aspect is of the the parallel, mm-hmm. which is a parallel in a very general sense. Right. But I think that the most interesting aspect is the effect of the suffering on the two characters. And the, the the difference of the like, how do you think Oedipus's suffering affected him in the end? Did it make him a better person? It certainly made him more self-aware. But did he repent? Essentially, did he change anything about himself, or did he merely just become aware that he wasn't? A god, basically, because if you if you consider in the very first opening scene, when the elders are betreating, um, beseeching him for help, they address him almost as they would address a god. You know, he's the chief right. man. But at the end, by the end of the play, when he's brought been brought low, does he realize any of his? character flaws and and change them because job realized the flaws in his faith the flaws in his character and repented of them changed them so what base what fundamental effect did the suffering have on oedipus i feel like it it didn't actually have the greatest effect. I mean, if you look in in the second play, he just kind of turns out to be a very annoyed, resentful old man. <laughs> well, I don't have the advantage that you guys have of knowing the sequels. I haven't read the sequels. Oh, okay. But gotcha. yeah, we'll, we'll cover the... those next time. Oh, but mm-hmm. no, the play basically ends once he stabs his eyes out. I mean, there's a quick little thing with his daughters where he's just being sad, but it's not like right. he goes like, oh, look, I, I did this. It's, it, I feel like he's more, he's more despairing than repentant, you know? Well, but what, yeah. there is no forgiveness in the Greek world. I That's mean, true. What, who is he supposed to repent to? I mean, That's true. Right. The well, people he's sinned against are his children. They're the only people left for him to say I'm sorry to. And he does. He looks at his it's daughters true. and is like, I am sorry for everything I've done to you. And he talks to his brother-in-law slash uncle and is like, help them. Mm. And do the best you can for this city. And I'm sorry for thinking that you were trying to betray me. You know, that's true. He does kind of have a bit of a turnaround at the end. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Of course, he he doesn't really feel sorry for killing his dad or sleeping with his mom (laughs) in, like, a sort of repentance to them. But, like, he repents to the living, which is all that he can do. Because the dead are dead. What can you do? Mm Mm-hmm. 
That's a very, um, very good, good point. I hadn't thought of that, that he does sort of apologize to them. Yeah, he, he grieves for them would be kind of um, the most accurate way you could possibly put it. Um, interesting, he never changes on his most fundamental level as, as evidence, but what Creon, Creon says, um, um, Oedipus is taking leave of them. Come then, but leave your children, Oedipus says. No, you cannot take them away from me. Creon <laughs> says, still you try to take control of everything. Go, your power has not followed you through life. Right, so, but I mean, is there a you... level at which the reason he doesn't change is because he was perfect in every way his personality is that of a hero. He is mm. the righteous person. He's just made, he's been through fate and through the situations of life, even like someone who has all the right personality traits and should be a hero can end up, well, falling apart and doing awful things and failing. And how often do we see that in our society today? Like, you know, you see these people that are like, well, you've got it. They've got it all cut out for them, right? It's like it's like they're great, they're successful, they they seem to be really nice people, and then like, well, then a scandal happens, and then it turns out, well, I mean, maybe they didn't sleep with their mother and kill their dad, but you know, right? It's very interesting well, stuff. I guess it it just kind of makes you think about well, everybody thinks. Oh, that, that sort of a thing would never happen to me. I would never right. do something like that. Uh-huh. And it kind of really hits back that it's much easier to fall into something like that than you would think. It's much easier right. to, to fall as a person than, than you would think. So it's kind of a cautionary tale against arrogance. And in a way, I think towards the beginning of the play... Um, Oedipus certainly does come across as rather arrogant, doesn't he? I mean, in the, in the way that he is so quick to point fingers, um, in the way that he is kind of a bit of a hothead. Um, would you guys agree on me? Agree with I me suppose. on that one? I mean, he is the king, but yeah, he is. But I would also say that his arrogance isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think that a lot of characters in Greek mythology are arrogant, and that's normally seen as like a positive trait. Is it though? No, I don't. I wouldn't say say that. I mean, because if you if you think about the the Iliad and yeah. how Achilles' arrogance and not being willing to stand down had catastrophic consequences. But I is mean, it Achilles' arrogance that is seen as the problem? Because I always thought that Achilles' arrogance was perfectly fine. And that was Agamemnon who was in the wrong. No, uh, they... Uh, like, can't you... All the characters in the yep. stories are always are, are like continually chewing out Achilles for, like, moping. Like, okay, yeah, maybe maybe according to the to the, the structure of the day, it was, it was maybe justified moping, but everybody's like, quit moping, man, we need your help. Well, well, right, he, and he basically says, I will help, assuming that Agamemnon gives me what I deserve. Right. And Agamemnon's kind of like, I can't at this point because it's backing down. And right. so you have these well, two but, people who can't back down. Right, but then it's, then it's his arrogance that's the problem too, right? Well, th- th- they were both pretty arrogant. Right. <laughs> arrogant characters and unwilling to compromise, which led to a, a downfall. But, I mean, the, 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 the exact situation in the Iliad maybe is, is not quite as relevant. I mean, but the, the basic point that comes across in that scenario is that too much unwield, unyielding arrogance is a serious flaw in a hero. And I think that Although it's not central to the plot, you can kind of see see his arrogance as a character flaw that he's blind to. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Alrighty, so we're um we're kind of starting to to run low on time here. So to kind of to kind of wrap it up, like uh, the um since we're talking about arrogance and and fate and stuff like that, it, I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about just uh how um how like 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 do do either of you believe in fate? Like are 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 decisions predetermined? Is is there any way that we um, how, should like what? What's our response to fate? Like, does fate exist? Does it not exist? Does um, how is is ours a faded world? Like, how, like, uh, talk to me about this a little bit. Let's let's apply this to real life to, to close out the podcast. Well, um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure um, about the details of Aiden's background. But I'm a Christian, and I know you are too, Gabe. So, um, yes and no. Not in the traditional sense of fate that we get in this Greek play. But there is, um, God plays a role in the universe, and he steps in and stops, he sets a limit on how badly we can, um, he may, like Job, allow bad things to happen to us, but he always allows round two, which is, of course, heaven, where everything will be a perfect world. So, Right. Yeah, Oedipus sure doesn't have that. All he's got to look forward to is the underworld, which the uh, less-than-benevolent gods still control. <laughs> Yeah, um, Aiden. I know you're a Christian too, but uh, being from a Reformed background, do you do you have a slightly different perspective on on fate or not? Um, well, I mean, I do, though. I don't want to say it's because I'm from a Reformed background. I oh, mean, okay. I do have yeah, a different right. perspective on fate. Um, I know that my perspective on fate has changed over time. I definitely think we're responsible for our actions. That's kind of obvious mm-hmm. from reading the Bible, I mean, you're definitely responsible. So, right. at the same time, God well, knows the future, and so how much of that is predetermined and, well, at, just from a philosophical point of view, I have a hard time buying that faith isn't, to some extent, true. Right. Okay, yeah, so how... Uh... So how do we respond in situations like okay? Because nowadays we don't have oracles and prophecies like they used to, but um, we have statistics. <laughs> um, so so when people say that like um, when 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 if if you come from a family who's uh, who's uh, that has like like your parents are divorced and their parents were divorced, it's like your your odds of of staying together. Uh, in a marriage are are less right and and uh, other things can also decrease that odds so how how do we respond to bad odds, odds for marriage like that not necessarily for marriage but like other statistics that could come up but yeah i don't know sorry i cut you off Aiden. what were you gonna say um i just was going to say i mean the odds for marriage aren't they just like straight up like with no background, just like straight up, like fifty percent chance that yeah. there's going to be a divorce. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's not good odds. And no, it's not. <laughs> so, so how how do we respond to prophecies like that in 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 our lives? Like, like what 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 can we learn from Oedipus's tragedy? <laughs> <laughs> feel uh feel free to uh send in your answers to this question audience um apparently we don't very... gmail.com sorry what yeah apparently we don't have a very good answer to this because i'm not really sure right because I, I don't think the story of oedipus necessarily gives us the answer he just has this prophecy and it happens to him um 
Yeah, maybe maybe that's just a question to ponder and consider for our audience as as a bit of a closer, sort of like yeah, yeah think about that for for another week. <laughs> yeah. So All right. Next week we're going to talk about Oedipus in Corinth. Yes, Oedipus in Corinth, and if I found that one to be less in it's not in Corinth, it's in. A city snap. It's Oedipus in Colombe. Yeah. It's not Corinth. Sorry, Sorry, yeah. That's my fault. That's all right. Yeah, the the second play. And if we have time, we'll also yeah. we'll also go over the third play. So, okay. all right. Thank thank you so much for listening, audience. This was a really great time. Uh, if you enjoyed, please uh, please subscribe and and tell your friends about it, or visit us at our website right now. Our website is kind of a work in progress. But eventually, it will appear at www.litsot.ml. So that's www.litsot.ml. That's that's our podcast name, the acronym, Lighthouses in the Sea of Time. All right. So uh, until next time, uh, keep reading. (laughs) All right. Goodbye.